welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Scott Nye. I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening. David, it's Friday. This is not usually a recording day. It's been a no. chaotic week. How you doing? It has been a chaotic just day um, for me. But that yeah, too. chaotic week. It's the first week back to the real world after the holiday break. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, oh, today... Today I spent all day with Tyler, which is always fun, but there was also a lot of just going on. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, you and I talked to Tyler today because we finalized we sure something did. we've been we've been kicking around, uh, and so as it was your idea, you're the brainchild. This is your baby. Why oh, sure. Tell, tell the listeners what we're talking about. So, uh, with Tyler, you know. Relative out of commission. I'm glad that he's been able to join on recent podcasts, uh, both for the listener's sake and, hey, it gives me a week off. Um, but with him out of commission, David and I have been kind of divvying up his usual duties. David uh, heroically took on the challenge of tallying the results of our annual BPs last year, but he passed that on to me. And so I was kind of kicking around um, some ideas to kind of shake things up. You know, we've had kind of a steady voting block for a couple of years now. It's uh, great. We all love it. But it's, you know, we've been going, I mean, we've been doing this for almost 10 years now, the BPs. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, definitely predates the Patreon. Um, oh, for sure. Um, yeah. So I, I was just thinking there's got to be some way we can kind of shake it up. And then I was like, oh, you know what? We have a Patreon that is sometimes underutilized in terms of listener engagement and extra perks to give people. So um, for this year, and I'm sure subsequent years, assuming it all goes well, um, we'd like to give the patrons a shot at uh, helping fill out the nominations. So anyone who is subscribed to the Patreon um, at any level, I think we said, we actually didn't finalize that, but let's go with any level. Yeah. Um, is eligible to submit a full ballot. It's not like we'll be telling those ballots and making one master ballot of those. We are influencing a ballot in some way. No, each listener has their yeah. own ballot that they will get to submit. Yeah, um, we're not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame over here. Yeah, which yeah. Is, that's how they do the fan vote is equal to one. Like uh, anyone can vote online for the Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame, and all of those votes together equal one ballot. Now we're not going to pull any uh, pandering, condescending shit like that. You're a patron, yeah. you get a ballot, a ballot for the full ballot. Um, so yeah, um, we're accepting submissions up until the end of January 29th. So anyone who signs up before then, um, they'll get a link to the ballot and a chance to submit. Um, patrons, if for whatever reason you're not receiving a ballot in the next coming few days, you know, give us a couple of days to get things together, but you should get one very shortly. Uh, yeah. Please email us and we will correct that. Um, but yeah, it, definitely get involved uh you know i see this as a chance to decrease the influence that david and i have over the course of the voting period um <laughs> so you know if you like kind of enjoy us but secretly resent our taste this is this is a chance to correct things um oh you, and, i didn't even think about it like that because i was thinking like i should be i should be care not to influence two people too much by saying you know consider donnie yen as best supporting actor for John Wick chapter four, which I do and which I submitted on my OFCS ballot this week. But, um, excellent choice. Yeah, people could be, uh, the opposite. People could be like, I, I want to undercut this guy and, and do yeah. the opposite of what he says. You know, I mean, we have the pretension label in here. Um, so if you feel we are too pretentious or not pretentious enough, some people who feel that, um, you know, by all means, get your votes in here for uh, trying to get the passive passive fiction. There goes a there's a good pretentious movie this year. Um, get your strong yeah. votes in for that. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I uh, hope um, this will excite people who are already subscribed to the Patreon and um, provide a little extra benefit for that. All right. Um, so yeah, go patreon.com slash battleship retention. And then again, if you uh, don't get your ballot in, uh, in, in short order, uh, email me at uh, david at battleship retention.com and I'll make sure it gets done. This is the first year we're doing this. So uh, hopefully not the last though. Absolutely. All right. Um, before we move on, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for more professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. And uh, I've um, not that anyone cares outside of like a couple friends, including friend of the show, Sean Ingram, uh, but I'm finalizing my personal list of the best albums of 2023. Right. Um, and uh, so I've been either listening to or re-listening to a lot of stuff, mostly a lot of metal. Uh, and I wanted to highlight something that is not on my list, but is very good nonetheless. This is kind of a through the cracks. Although if you're into Watch the out. world of like um, uh, ambient or folk block metal, this does not be through the cracks at all. But uh, the bird is called Black... The bird. The band is called Black Braid and the album is called Black Braid 2 roman numeral two uh and it sounds great it has super cool cover art uh hopefully uh scott can see that there um but uh oh yeah it sounded great uh it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds they're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension if debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Okay, we are back. Right. Let's get into it, shall we? This is, um, we're kicking off the new year, although this is actually the, no, this is the, this is the first episode. Mm, this is the second episode of the new year, isn't it? Anyway, is um, it? yeah, we did the, uh, um, Tyler and I did the, it insists upon itself episode, which we recorded in 2023, but which dropped in 2024. Um, but if it released, we released on Sundays, as I recall correctly. Yeah, but I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and also, uh, this goes back to the beginning. Officially, we release on Mondays. I True. post them Sunday night, but officially, Monday is when you ex should expect your uh, your new episode to drop. Um but uh, yeah, that one I didn't post till Monday night because of the holiday. Uh, but anyway, Scott and I at least are kicking off the year the same way we did last year, which is uh, running down a top 10 list of our favorite film discoveries of 2023, meaning not 2023 movies. Um, as I said last year, personal, I have a, I put a, um, uh, a 25 year uh uh limit so these are my, all my movies are 1998 or before in fact most i of do not well, well before that but um uh yeah scott might not do that and that's fine uh 
I, I don't impose my uh, rules on anyone else. God I, forbid. Would be, I would be insane to. My rules are nuts. There's too many rules. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're going to do 10. Hopefully this won't be a super long episode, though. We're not going to, like... We can try to be a little... Uh, um, brief. <laughs> Took me forever to get the word brief out. Not yeah. a good start. Not Off a good to start. A rousing start there. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I think I will just kick us off then with my sure. number 10. Uh, I should also say that I do, as similarly to when we do the best individual achievements, I take some of that through the cracks energy here. So, yeah. like, there are movies that are on my, like, new to me movie list, like, um Antonioni's blow up. I saw that for the first time this year, but that's like such a well-established and known classic movie that I don't want to waste your time. You already know blow up's great. And it turns out it is great. Like it's, uh, it's really, really great. Um, but I'm not going to waste your time. So these are, these are mostly movies that I saw for the first time and either wasn't aware of before this year or like didn't, expect to like it as much as i did yeah i took the so same I, tack um so like yeah. the exorcist isn't gonna be on mine even though i saw it for the first time this year right right um and like there was a couple that were kind of edge cases like witness which i feel like is not like which as is, much of a bona fide classic but like tons of people know about and so yeah which i've i'm, I'm like a uh, long time listeners know how much I like Peter Weir movies, but I've actually never seen Witness. It's um, astoundingly good and would definitely I'll have been my list yeah. if it had just been like purely yeah, first watches. Um, so I'm going to kick off with uh, sometime, it was over the summer, I think, maybe late spring. Um, the uh, I believe it was the UCA, UCLA Film and Television Archive, I think, did a double feature of Andre de Tote movies. Um, they kicked off the night with Pitfall, which I had seen before and which I love because I'm a, a big fan of um, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, oh my God, Scott. Who's Scott? The femme fatale. She's yeah. Uh, she's great. Or, or you're just a big fan of the corner of Fairfax and Wilshire, which features yeah. in the film. Yeah, which is now like where the Academy Museum. Is. Yeah. Uh, so that was where that was how the night started, and then. Uh, the second half of the double bill was an Andre de Tote Western that I'd never seen or didn't really hadn't heard of called Ramrod starring Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. And it's absolutely terrific. Um, I know, I know Veronica Lake, like from reputation as being like a blonde, blonde bombshell of the era, but I actually haven't seen like any of her big like movies. So this is kind of like a, an instruction like i haven't seen the blue dahlia and i haven't seen not seen travels oh you're not seen sullivan's travels uh no i can't recommend it. i hate sullivan's travels but it's just like a movie most people have seen yeah i know i've seen other preston sturgis movies yeah like i've seen miracle morgan's creek and i've seen uh what's the other one about the guy who like pretends to be a war hero even though he's uh uh what did they say oh. or whatever yeah i can't uh, i know what movie you're talking about i can't remember it also has eddie bracken from Miracle Morgan's Creek. I just can't remember the name of the movie. Yeah. Hail the Conquering Hero. Hail the Conquering Hero. That's what it's called. So I've seen that one. But uh, anyway, so this was like, uh, I was new to Veronica Lake. Definitely not new new to Joel McRae. I love Joel McRae. Uh, but Ramrod is um, all of, you know, 94 minutes long. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a lean, uh, uh, straight to the point Western. And it also captures 
one of my favorite things about this these kind of westerns where there's like there's the bad guy who's like you know like all these movies he's like the richest man in town who owns yeah. the large cattle ranch or whatever and there's the good guy who's going to stand up for the townspeople against him right yeah but then what i love about this and, and these kind of westerns is that like everybody who works under either of those two people is kind of just a hired hand, almost like they all work in the same like union and they just like happen to like get drafted to work for the one guy <laughs> instead of the other. So like all the henchmen, white hat or black hat, black hat henchmen are like, if not friends, at least like on a first name basis with one another. And this okay. is just like, they're just guns for hire and this is their job, you know? And I yeah. like that. I like that bit of, of texture like it just seems like we all work together but depending on how chips the chips fall i might have to shoot you tomorrow sure. <laughs> um, uh it's so yeah a, a, a fantastic little uh uh sleek black and white western from 1947 ramrod uh i'm going to try on my own list to note if and where people can find these films oh um, i should do that too and I'm happy to keep pace with you and Google these while you're, you know, spouting whatever bullshit you're talking about with your various picks. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so Ramrod is available. Somebody has uploaded it to YouTube, some kind soul. Um, so yeah. one can just log onto YouTube and uh, watch it semi-illicitly there. Uh, all, right. all right. What's your number 10? My number 10. Um, so I, for, I, along with seemingly many, many, many other people, including um great podcast shows korean longworth uh really got into erotic thrillers over the course of the pandemic and that kind of interest has carried through over this year and so uh cr the criterion channel did a great spotlight of various erotic thrillers some super famous like um single white female um and some really lesser known like my number 10 pick uh which is called call me um, it's directed by Solis Mitchell, who's not a name I know and I, who I don't believe has done much else of note, if much else at all. Um, and he co-wrote this film with a woman named Karen Kay. Um, but it is essentially about uh, a woman who um, at the beginning of the film gets a, a, an erotic phone call from a man who, uh, to her credit, she's not like a, being foolish here. She, he does sound a lot like her boyfriend um, who we met in kind of the scene prior. Um, and so he calls her and uh, starts like talking about meeting up at a bar somewhere and like asking her to wear a certain kind of clothes, maybe not wear any underwear, very erotically tinged stuff and not the kind of thing that she by her behavior and by the way she's receiving this phone call would associate with her boyfriend, but which she's kind of titillated by and very interested in and very excited that her boyfriend has taken this new approach, but she gets to the bar. Um, boyfriend's not there. Nobody really needs to know who she is, but there's a strange guy who like kind of starts chatting her up. Um, and she's very put off by that approach. And so she goes back to her apartment, kind of disappointed, at some point gets in a fight with her boyfriend over it. And in the course of that fight discovers that it wasn't her boyfriend who called her that night. Um, it was some other creepy weirdo dude um, who then keeps calling her back and with, who she tries to put off, but eventually finds sort of implicitly that he's giving her some erotic thrill that she is not getting um, through her boyfriend or through any other aspect of her life and starts to become a little complicit in this. Um, yeah, it being an erotic thriller, there's also a side story about uh, murder that soon becomes intertwined with this plot. 
Um, and it's just a really great use of the genre to kind of explore um, sort of hidden or repressed uh, sexual desires, which is really most of what the genre is good at digging out. Um, it starts with Patricia Carboneau, who listeners might know from um, Desert Hearts. She played um, not the main character, oh. but the brunette, um, the kind of lover that main character yeah. meets in the course of the film. Um, and she's really, really great in it. And yeah, it's just a really incisive, interesting look at um, kind of a type of sexuality that, you know, it, the famous saying they couldn't make this kind of film today because it's about essentially a woman kind of falling for becoming excited by a man who is um, in some ways sexually harassing her. But it's very true to a certain sexual experience that I think a lot of people have or secretly want or uh, try to avoid having um, and draws that out over the course of, you know, an 85 or so minute runtime. And that I really, really got a lot out of and uh, was really thrilled by. Um, so, yeah, it was, wasn't Criterion Channel during that month or so that they were spotlighting erotic thrillers. I don't think it's on there anymore, but it's now just on regular VOD or Tubi if you're a, a Tubi viewer. <laughs> um, and it looks like the the fella in the movie is Stephen McHattie. Um, Whom I don't know. Well, um, um He's probably to our generation. He's probably best known from Zack Snyder's Watchmen, where he played the older Night Owl, the older like former oh, Night okay. Owl. Um, he's also um, one of the two guys that um, Viggo Mortensen kills at the beginning of History of Violence. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, but he's done a lot of TV stuff. He's a, he's really good. I mean, he's. I think I've kind of. Uh, unfairly described him as the poor man's Lance Hendrickson in the past, but he is a very good actor on his own. He just has a Lance Hendrickson kind of look to him. Yeah. I mean, he has a strong presence in the movie too. Um, Further down the cast list, Steve Buscemi shows up as a character named Switchblade. um, And he's just as, you know, imposing (laughs) as that name would imply. Um, All right. So uh, my number nine discovery new to me movie of the year. I don't know if you've seen it as of this moment, but I know that you, have my blu-ray uh, sure. um, it's uh jean jacques anode's the lover um i have not yet seen this okay uh jean jacques anode is uh, i've never seen any of his films he's made like a lot of he's made like he did seven years in tibet and enemy at the gates and like seemed like kind of I, I guess i thought of him as just kind of a like like half prestige journeyman type um but uh this movie definitely has um its own uh point of view its own uh what's the word i'm looking for uh distinct i can't it's distinctive maybe yeah yeah well it's so it's it's um based on a novel by marguerite dura which is reportedly um largely autobiographical novel about a 15 year old get sorry get ready like get ready to clutch your pearls sure gen Gen z um and people like i have problems with this too but uh (laughs) um a 15 year old french girl living in colonial vietnam in the 20s um who uh takes up who essentially takes a lover who is a grown not old man but like a man in his 20s who is like the a wealthy 
air and he's chinese he like there's almost no vietnamese characters in the movie it's mostly just french girl and this chinese man in vietnam yeah i'm um, also saying that they have no character names they're just the younger on the chinese man right. etc cetera, etc cetera. that's right yeah um and uh i'm i'm really glad that i saw this movie when i did um i think that if i had seen this when i was younger I would have had a hard time um, liking or not even liking, just wrapping my head around the, the young girl character. Mm. Um, I think now I know uh, women and obviously she's not a woman, she's a girl, but I know what girls go through more, I think, cause I've, you know, uh, paid attention <laughs> in, the, in the world. <laughs> um, and uh, because of, like, this is her first fling, her first romance, but romance seems like the wrong word because she right. doesn't treat it. She almost treats it like in a more human way, like Bella in Poor Things. Like she's okay. like <laughs> um, exploring this like world of like of sex for the first time. Um, and meanwhile, this guy is falling in love with her and uh, uh, she certainly enjoys his company in in bed or on the floor or all the many other places. <laughs> uh, but um, I think I would have had a hard time understanding what she was going through or what she was getting out of this when I was, was younger. Uh, now I find it to be um, a, a bracingly uh, mature movie about a 15 year old girl. Uh, and I mean, obviously I'm not saying mature just because there's a lot of sex, which there sure. is. Apparently there is like uh and this is like the unrated cut. There's like an R-rated cut that like takes most of the sex out of it, which is like, what's the point? Exactly. This is what the movie is about. And I should say the actress is 18 or whatever. It's legal. I don't know what the <laughs> point is there. I don't know. It's the movie is not unaware that this is, uh, upsetting to people that sure. she's 15 and he's an adult for whatever it's worth. But it's also not pretending like this isn't, this is, this is her story about a 15 year old girl. And it's told from, uh, Jean Jean Moreau, uh, narrates the movie as the young girl, as an older woman. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I, I think all of the, the, um, like I said, uh, pearl clutching or, or, um, you know, eye narrowing you could do at the premise kind of stops being important once you get into this girl's point of view and realize this is her story, this is, this is what happened, happened. There's nothing you could do about it. Um, and like, we need to experience it the way she did, not the way that we wish she would, you know, sure. not make her a victim because she, she doesn't see herself as a victim. Uh, and whether she is or not, like that's the movie from her point of view, but it's also, the movie is also beautiful, beautifully shot. Um, a lot of I, I don't know where exactly they shot it, but it's um, very uh, on location type of filmography. I'm trying to, uh, yeah, they shot it in Vietnam, yeah, Ho Chi Minh City, in Saigon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 gorgeous and um, psychologically uh, interesting. Um, the man, by the way, is is played by Tony Leung, but not that Tony Leung, the other Tony Leung. Yeah, that always throws me yeah fortunately like wiki and imdb like list him very distinctly but yeah. at first i'm always like oh Tony Long. Uh, yeah. yeah 
but he's also like a super handsome guy. Sure, sure. You it's can see like, the appeal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's the the lover. Um, I can't wait to hear what Scott thinks when he watches uh, and then returns. No, I'm kidding about that. My yeah. Blu-ray. Well, you yeah, know, once we're out of 2023 catch up, when I do my top ten list in about a month, then uh, be happy to move on to literally anything else. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I want us to also see more of Marguerite Duras's films that she's like directed because um, she's directed a handful, and I've seen one of them um and it was it was a tough set but i mean i'm intrigued to see more hmm. um all right my number nine is kiyoshi kurosawa's pulse so i saw this on a double bill at the new beverly with his uh much more acclaimed film cure which i do really like um and i think sat with me a little more strongly in the coming days than pulse did but that's also because Pulse made such a great, huge, immediate impression on me that uh, it'd be a lot for any film to catch up with it. Um, so I've been thinking a lot, as I think some people in our generation maybe have, about like early 2000s culture and the ways in which that has uh, carried on and infected and affected and shaped the world we currently live in. And most, you know, Pointedly in that is kind of like internet culture and just the existence of the internet at all. And, you know, the extent to which that's been a good thing for society and the many, many ways and many observable ways in which that's been a bad thing. And like pretty much right away, this is a 2001 film and Kurosawa is like wrestling with all of that um, right away. And it's just kind of about um, a sort of it's tough to describe really, but it's a sort of spiritual virus that spreads through a group of college or college age people um, who are connected via sort of friendship and social groups. Um, when we talked about this, I think I mentioned it on uh, one of my movie journals on the Patreon. I kind of likened it to a Jacques Rivette film. It's very much like that about these like people who are semi acquainted or in, sometimes in close friendships um, who all get kind of wrapped up in this kind of abstract mystery that has no solution. There's no thing to uncover. And I think for most viewers, you can kind of detect that energy right away that there's not kind of a big bad waiting at the other end. There's just a constant mystery that will just get deeper and weirder. The more these people and the more the audience kind of sits in it. Um, and so they first encountered this by going to visit one of their friends in his apartment and he doesn't seem to be there. And they just find a lot of strange evidence that he is now dead before someone sees suddenly his ghost. And the film has a lot of great, like very spooky ghost sequences that aren't explicitly jump scares, but like it was fun seeing this with an audience because there aren't like a big, like music sting, like someone jumps out, jump kind of jump scares, but there are a couple scenes where like suddenly a light will turn on and someone will be there and the music won't accentuate it. But like, the shock of it is pretty pointed and in a film that's given you very few overt jump scares. It was fun to hear the audience kind of scream at these kind of like very subtle jump scares. Um, and there's other like really weird ghost sequences. There's a woman who kind of walks in a very strange unnerving way that like isn't overtly scary, except for the context in which it's presented. And Kurosawa just has a great hand in that kind of scare. It's like, there's just something wrong with what we're seeing and we can't quite put our fingers on it, but it's very unsettling. 
Um, and the more this kind of like computer virus spreads, the further around the globe it seems to reach and the more outside of the sphere of the social circle it seems to spread. And it just becomes this vast, uncontrollable thing, much, you know, like the internet itself. And for Kurosawa to kind of identify this and explore this, um, you know, in still the age of pretty much like the dial-up modem um, was very cool. And I think it's um, a film that continues to resonate well into the present. And yeah, it's just one I was totally thrilled by through and through. Um, so yeah, I saw it at a screening. It's now, you can watch it on Tubi or uh, various VOD services. Um, did we say where you can find The Lover? If not... Um, I think we did not, but it's... Saving. It's on Canopy and and it's on Film Movement. But oh. it's all... Uh, um, if you if you canopy's free if you if your library participates in film movement you have to have a subscription but it's also rentable through like Vudu and Apple yeah anyway okay so uh, moving on I try to um, every year well we did this, last year's the first year but um, I also used to do these lists for Speaks dot com um, and I always try to limit to hopefully one maybe two how many things have been put out on. Uh, by the Criterion Collection. Oh, sure. Because I feel like it's too easy. But I'm going to do uh, one... Well, I'm actually going to do more. But I'm going to do one uh, Criterion movie right now, uh, which is um, Working Girls. Not Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. Working Girls, directed by Lizzie Borden, the director, not the accused and acquitted murderer from the 1890s. Uh, the director, Lizzie Borden. Um, and uh, Working Girls is... Uh, first off, have you seen it? Scott, no, this has been on my list. I mean, since Criterion put it out, and... yeah, um, it's a uh, it's a it's a day in the life movie, um, and it's kind of an ensemble piece, but it really does have one sort of main character who's a uh, a queer woman who works uh, at a somewhat high end Manhattan brothel. It's basically just like a two story condominium that is uh, run as a as a brothel and um she's doing that to put herself through school but uh again as i was saying with the lover this isn't a movie that is interested in making her out to be sort of like a victim of circumstance uh really working girls is a slice of life workplace movie there's more of the movie is the sex workers like sitting around talking between John's so that we do see scenes with, with their clients as well. Most of it is them talking and uh, it's, I could have the term working girls. Obviously that is a euphemism working girls, a euphemism for uh, a sex worker. But uh, I, when we did our Patreon about movies about labor, I almost could have mm. included working girls because so much of what they talk about is like complaining about their boss, like forcing them to work on fair hours or not giving them their, proper like split of the pay or stuff it really is a movie about like it's a working class movie it's just about women who are sex workers and are a variety of different walks of life like it's you know um the the woman doing sex work or stripping or whatever to put herself through college is probably not as common in the real world as it is a a, a trope in, right. in in storytelling but uh the movie also recognizes that they're not all like that there are um directionless young women who just want money and then there's also um the the day that the 
thing starts a new a new the thing new the day the movie takes place a new girl starts who's a black woman and there's some very frank conversations about how she's you know they they're not they're not salaried they work on commission i guess if she would say and discussions about how she's likely to make less than the white girls um because it all depends on who the john wants to take upstairs uh it's it's a fascinating uh workplace dramedy um it's often very funny as as well uh and uh yeah i loved it i've never seen any of lizzie borden and made a bunch of other movies um Uh, fewer than you would think because i i thought the same too but i was just looking at her filmography and it's only six looks like and even then like one's a uh oh two just have segments so it's really only four features oh okay yeah you're right um but I haven't seen any of them. I, I feel like I can picture the love crimes like VHS box. Um, but that's about it. Yeah, I, I was. Know. I don't know these other ones. I was literally on my way to see a screening of Born in Flames at one point, And like I, I, something came up and I couldn't make it. Um, ah. That's been on my list too forever. Yeah. Got to check those so, out. Yeah. Uh, and Working Girls is probably it's probably on the Criterion channel. I didn't look it up. <laughs> it is. It's also on Max. Okay. All right. Um, my number eight is probably the least like discovery of the pack, but I, I couldn't not mention um, Jonathan Demme's Manchurian Candidate because it made such a magnificently huge impression on me. Um, so it's obviously a remake of the 60s film with Frank Sinatra, um, which I've never really been that into. It kind of exists at uh intersection between kind of classical Hollywood and new Hollywood that can sometimes be very exciting and sometimes feel a little awkward to me as um, the Frankenheimer film does. Um, But Demi's update of it feels extremely fresh and prescient and of its time, but also kind of like pointing towards the future and very incisive for a 2004 film. Um, So as with the original, it's about um, a former soldier who, um, has been happily repeating kind of the party line about his service in the army, who now um, is coming to question what that service means and if any of it really happened and the extent to which he might have been, in fact, brainwashed um, through the course of his service. Um, the, the soldier here is played by Denzel Washington, um, and he this was a really good period for Denzel. So it's 2004, it was the same year as Man on Fire, um, it was kind of like at an intersection period between some of the more prestige stuff he did in the 90s and more of the kind of like schlocky genre films he'd kind of come to do more and more through the course of the 2000s. Um, this it puts him in a position where he can kind of be the hero, but also kind of be the one instigating it. And that I think that's the strongest update the film makes to the 60s version is that it doesn't let the main character be as much of like the detective or the one covering it. He is like very much a part of the eventual assassination plot that the film kind of explores and his um, exploration of it and resistance to it is very much at the center of the film's uh, uneasy tension. Um, So the Lee of Schreiber plays kind of a amalgam character in kind of Comparing it to the original here, he's a former soldier who's now running for Congress. Um, His mother uh, is played by Meryl Streep in what the press notes in the course of like reading up on the film resist 
likening her to Hillary Clinton, but it, the resemblance is unmistakable, especially in the hairstyle and the costume design. Um, and it's very hard to imagine the filmmakers weren't at least conscious of the comparison, if not trying to directly make it. Um, and so for a 2004 film, you know, this is coming out in an election year when um, most people in Hollywood, and I would venture to assume Jonathan Demme as well, were trying to get uh, John Kerry elected and trying to oust the Bush administration, trying to get um, more Democrats in the White House and in Congress, et cetera, for a 2004 film to point a lot of the blame for the state of the country at the feet of uh, the Democratic Party is pretty striking. You know, as with most films, it doesn't overtly name the party they're a part of. But through like the the platforms they talk about and again, through the association with Hillary Clinton, it's easy to associate the party Lee of Shriver is part of with uh, the Democrats. And they're very everyone, Meryl Streep herself and everyone she's involved with are very like corporate focused, very much trying to service um, this vast corporation that is essentially setting the tone and future for um, military service. And looking at it now, you know, almost 20 years later, it feels incredibly prescient to the way the um, uh, military industrial complex has been regarded and the kind of hold it has over American society at large. Um, and especially the way it has a hold over military service is incredibly incisive. Um, and it makes a lot of unusual choices within there. Um, one of which is casting John Voight as like the voice of reason, <laughs> which like from modern <laughs> perspective seems like unimaginable, yeah. but you know, at yeah. the time, maybe more, uh, mainstream, even though I think even then he was a you know, big Bush supporter. Um, but there's, yeah, just a lot of subversive, unusual choices the film makes. And it's just, as with most Jonathan Demme films, incredibly well-directed, he, does as normal kind of these very like direct address things where characters are looking directly into the camera. And while that's always like an effective technique here, it, it's very unsettling as a way of continually destabilizing Denzel Washington's character and his sense of sanity and his sense of place and his sense of his own emotional well-being. Um, shot by Tak Fujimoto. So it of course looks incredible. Um and yeah, it's a film that I've watched twice now and it's just really kind of stuck with me. Oh, and it also, there's an incredible bit at, towards the end where it's like gearing up towards the assassination where like they're doing the big campaign announcement. It's at the Democratic convention. And so it's like this big celebratory moment and they have like a Fountains of Wayne song playing. That's both like um, kind of a great commentary on the Democratic Party's way of incorporating, you know, quote unquote, alt artists into mainstream political campaigning, but also like really services to ratchet the tension in a very like un unexpected, unusual way. Um, yeah, it's just a great film overall that I really, really hope uh, more people see. I saw that um, Kino Lorber is going to put a 4K edition of it, which is awesome because it's just been on like a studio's sanctioned Blu-ray from like 2009 or whatever. Um, so it's will do for an update. Um, but if you want to watch it sooner, it's available on Max. Uh, yeah, I, Tyler and I were both big fans of this when it came out. Um, uh, and how much it like became its own thing, you know, from the source material, and also um, what I remember he and I talking about a lot at the time was how like seeing this movie at the time, if you've been following Denzel Washington's career, where he was always 
playing characters who were so in control and so self-possessed yeah. and the way that he like falls apart and is so unselfconsciously like vulnerable in this movie was um one of my favorite performances of that year i remember saying um as far as the original Manchurian candidate i have not seen it in forever i used to be obsessed with it but oh, I, wow. but i also also wonder if like you were saying that transition between old hollywood and new hollywood i wonder if it was just like i hadn't seen a movie that was like from that era in black and white that was also yeah. like um felt like it had those modern touches you know the whole like opening like the the scene of the brainwashing scene where it's like cutting back and forth between what's really happening and what uh Lawrence Harvey is that his name um yeah. what his care what his character thinks he's seeing you know that felt like so amazing to me i hadn't seen a movie that old <laughs> i mean with these kind of uh you know pre-method uh um actors um it, it felt really revelatory but like i said i haven't seen it in like 20 years so maybe yeah and i i like most of what frank and was doing around that time you know birdman and malcolm was the same year i love that film um the train was a couple years later amazing film both of which are kind of like edging towards the new hollywood thing mm -hmm. there's just something about the venture in canada that doesn't quite work for me and i think it's because it doesn't like that the, the protagonist is more like a hero character the way he isn't right. yeah like right. the classical denzel character in the remake yeah uh all right next up for me i until this year the only um gilo or gilo pantacorvo movie i'd ever seen or really thought about was the battle of algiers but uh i weirdly had like an afternoon free in like late may where i think natalie went to like a uh, a music festival or something with friends and i just had like time to kill and brain dead studios in the middle of the day middle of the afternoon was showing jill pontecorvo's capo from uh oh man i wanted to see this movie forever yeah um uh turner uh, 1960 with susan susan strasberg um and uh this is this won't continue to be a theme looking at my list, but I've had this theme of like three movies in a row of like, uh, young women making unfortunate <laughs> life choices, but we are on their side in a way. Uh, so Susan Strasberg gets a Holocaust movie and Susan Strasberg plays a Jew who is sent to, um, a, a, a concentration camp, um, and who through the kindness, I guess of, uh, of um one of the other prisoners finds out that the best way to keep herself alive because she's like slated to be executed because she's uh i guess because she's of no use um but one way to keep herself alive is to become a capo which is basically like work for the ss like be the head of your barracks or whatever and enforce the ss's rules for them so she essentially has to like become the enemy to stay yeah. alive um and um you know she starts a potential uh romance while she's there there's a whole story but it's a i mean it's a tragic story but what i guess what really rocketed to my list list is realizing uh i mean sometimes it takes seeing two movies from a director or two performances from an actor to really like see what they're uh how talented they are and realizing that like Bella of algiers is not a fluke uh mm. Pontecorvo was an amazingly talented filmmaker. I'll um I'll try to describe the our introduction to the camp and and, and try to get across how amazing this 
this series of shots is. Okay. So we get to the camp and we immediately leave Susan Strasberg and we see almost a montage of children being ripped away from their parents from infants to like, you know, toddlers, tweens, whatever. Like there's just a series of like, as soon as these families come in immediately, the children are separated. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're, you're seeing these different shots of this happening. And then uh, you see like a bunch of, families lined up against the wall and the SS officers come and like grab the kids to pull away and grabs one of the kids. And it is Susan Strasberg. And suddenly we go from being in this montage to being like, all oh, right, we're back into her story. And I, I don't mm-hmm. feel like I'm doing a good enough job of explaining uh, how masterful a series of shots it, it is to like, well, it's a tough take us to away. From, yeah. But like taking us away from the character establishing how awful the place is and then very uh without without breaking stride getting us back into the character now with the knowledge of uh, that we've gotten over the past like 15 seconds of film of how awful this place is uh is it's it, my jaw dropped when i saw that 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 shot because at the, shot, at the beginning of the shot you don't understand that susan strasberg is in the shot that you're right at. and then they grab her and you realize it's her um but that's just one of many like great little uh filmmaking touches the Pantacoro uses um and he seems like I, I mean this is 1960 the like film school brats would be right around the corner but he definitely seems like a a, a kind of precursor to that kind of um thinking in cinema uh uh filmmaking yeah i've well i've not only wanted to say this for like general historical filmography like it's supposed to be a very important great film um Mm -hmm. but i've also become recently very interested in susan strasberg as an actress um and she's like just by the name alone you would think she's like the ultimate nepo baby of like she's the daughter of this famous acting teacher who like revolutionized the entire profession and the entire art form um but like seeing her in picnic and the other side of the wind and I saw this like hammer horror film she was in called Scream of Fear or Taste of Fear. That's um, really, really good. Um, and she's just got it. I mean, she's so good in everything mm-hmm. I've seen her in. Um, so I mostly at this point want to see it, that for her. Uh, once again, I didn't I didn't look up where you can, where you can oh, see yes, it. Yes, I did. It's um, uploaded to YouTube. Again, if you uh, just want to watch it that way, I think it actually might be on Criterion though. Come to think of it, which I'll find out momentarily. Uh, a few letters. Yeah, it is on Criterion as well. There you go. Perfect. All right. Um, my number seven, we're getting back into the erotic thriller terrain with quite possibly, and this is, really saying something but quite possibly the most uncomfortable erotic thriller i've ever seen um it's one called wild side from 1995 um directed by donald kamel um who i think you know from uh his directing demon seed from the 70s um yeah. which i also saw for the first time this year and loved yeah. um he also wild- made um a movie that um screen factory put out that i have the blu-ray of called uh white of the eye that's, yeah, I've been wanting to see that too. No, well, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll lend you the the Blu-ray. It's 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 really good. Right on. Um, so, Wild Side was a movie that he made in the mid '90s um, that he co-wrote with his wife uh, China Kong, um, 
and which was taken away from him by the producers and recut. And, you know, legend has it, rumor is that um, his uh, subsequent suicide was a direct result of his disappointment and frustration and anger over um, the mangling of his film. Um, He committed suicide, I think, that year or the next year. yeah, it was, it was the next year, 96. The film was released in 95. Um, but um, is his director's cut has been subsequently reconstructed by uh, China Kong and some other invested folks. Um, and that's the version that I watched and which you can find, again, Google around. There's like, it may be on like Daily Motion or Vimeo or one of those kind of sites. I think that's where I ended up watching it. Um, and I mean, it's a strange strange film it's um Anne Hayes stars as a banker who moonlights as a uh, high-end sex worker um who kind of gets drawn into uh money laundering and drug trafficking by one of her clients played by a and when i say unhinged for this actor it's uh tough to convey just how unhinged because that's his reputation but not very unhinged christopher walken um who has this like hairstyle that's like pointedly fake and like jet black and like long and very it, it it's the kind of hair that looks like it's going to leave a stain on you if he touches you um it's so like artificial and unnerving um but he is trying to kind of like draw her closer into his fear um and she is intrigued by that because um, he is married to a woman played by Joan Chen whom she quickly becomes very attracted to. And it becomes kind of like an even more sordid version of Bound, where it's these two women who quickly form a relationship and a sec- uh, of a se- mostly sexual nature, but growing romantic relationship, um, who are trying to undo um, and uh, kind of like do away with the men around them and escape with one another. Um, and as sordid as Bound is, this is way 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 more sordid and way more uncomfortable and way more difficult to watch but incredibly compelling um and it culminates in this very long probably at least a half hour scene that's um between the three of them plus a guy who's working for christopher walken who's actually an undercover cop um played by stephen bauer who is probably the most corrupt of all Um, to the film's credit. It's very much like an ACAB movie where it's like, you know, Christopher Walken's a maniac, but he's kind of got a code and he's kind of got a, 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 the line he'll draw eventually. Um, This guy, Tony, the Stephen Bauer plays is completely without any moral principle and is looking at every turn for a way to exploit everyone. And the film ratchets it up to the entire police department early on in the film he um hired sort of hires but it kind of becomes equated with Anne Haitian like full-on rapes her and he tells her you know he's a cop and that you know she can't really do anything about it when she tries to report him the other cop on the other line is like yeah so what you know what are we going to do about it cop life that's you know what are we going to we'll haul you in basically if you try to make a big thing of this um and make your life hell um, so it quickly established that Anne Hage has like nowhere to look and no one to rely on except for herself and maybe this woman she's falling in love with. Um, and the film just becomes more and more unhinged and intense and strange and weird. And it's just a 
thrill ride on very visceral level, but also just very incisive about um, the extents to which people will go to, to find some sense of themselves, to um, uncover unhidden parts of themselves and um, things that they're kind of reticent to reveal to one another and to even themselves. Um, It kind of culminates in this great walk and monologue where he's um, he essentially connects with Anne Heche over their draws to extremity in their own lives. And it becomes like a very vital connection point at a point where the two of them are going to be separated in which they could like essentially kill one another and get away with it. But they recognize in one another a shared sense of exploring life's extremities um and yeah i I wouldn't have ever even known about it if not for karina longberg's great series on um kind of erotic films in the 90s this was one she spotlighted alongside uh bound i won't go as far as she did in saying that's better than bound but it's definitely an interesting companion to it and explores some territory that bound in all its um adventurousness would not even dare to go near um so yeah strongly strongly recommend uh and again it's called wild side wild side okay so we're on to my number six right yeah uh and this is another one that's in the criterion collection um and it's actually one of two picks that i'm using one film to represent sort of a series of shorts that i watched okay but i'm picking one so i watched uh criterion's um the signifying works of Marlon Riggs. Uh, Marlon oh, Riggs yeah. was a an American documentarian uh, who died in the mid nineties. And there's like a seven film, I think, collection um, of of his of his shorts. But some of them are um, features. Uh, most are shorts. The one I'm picking is a feature. It's like 80, 85 minutes, and it's the final movie that he made. He actually died before it came out. Um, and it was finished, uh, according to his, his editing notes, uh, it's called black is black ain't, uh, and it's a documentary about blackness, about what blackness means. Um, and I think it's more about how it's unfair that there are so many different people saying this is what black is and this is what black isn't, uh, interviews with people who are, um, some of them are seen or have been criticized for not being black enough by the black community, or some have been criticized for being too black for the white community or things like that. Uh, but if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you've heard me talk about documentaries uh, or really films in general. It's not the kind of film that was like, uh, okay, I have this point to make it's not a thesis. Like it doesn't have an outline and we're going to like uh, gear everything toward making this point. It feels like discovery. It feels like he's, um, motivated to explore this topic and is, um, uh, making it on, uh, on is it's, it's, a uh, instinctive filmmaking in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's also very urgent filmmaking because he was dying while he, he was dying of AIDS while he was making it. He's in the movie in his hospital bed, uh, while he was, uh, making the movie. Like I said, he died before the editing was, was finished. Um, really that entire, um, set of the signifying works is definitely worth uh checking out but black is black ain't is kind of a sort of crowning you know um exclamation point on the end of a a short but uh very productive and vital career 
Yeah, it's another one that I, I need to check out. I see it's available on uh, Canopy, so I will make a point of it. Um, I haven't seen that film yet, but I did recently see um, Derek Jarman's Blue for the first time. Oh, which yeah. Is another film that was you know made by someone, a director dying of AIDS. Um, great film. Yeah. You saw that. It was like at the Academy. Yeah. Yeah. That was huge screen. That would be fun. It was uh, uh, very overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it. I, I saw it in film school in like a screening room, but like, like you and I would go to see like a press screening type of yeah, yeah. screening room and almost certainly projected from a DVD. I'm not sure what you were, what yours was. It uh, was DC. supposed to be a print, but uh, customs held it up. So it would end up being a DCP, unfortunately, which is still a higher quality than the, the DVD that I yeah, saw yeah. when I was, when I was 20 or whatever. But yeah, I still, I have yeah very distinct memories of experiencing that, that film. Well, and what I didn't know about it, because I understood it to be mostly like his narration. I didn't know it had such an elaborate sound uh, kind of design. And so I was glad to see it on the Academy's sound system, which is like, in my opinion, right, the best yeah. in the city. Either theater of theirs is like incredibly well attuned and yeah. uh, very uh, well assembled. But that's not one of your picks. No, it is not. Um, and I'm sorry to go on a jag from your pick, which yeah. uh, is not a film I've seen, but I, I do need to see all right. Um, my number six, though. Um, so Justine Tritt has gotten uh, well-deserved acclaim for her very, very great film, Anatomy of a Fall, that I absolutely love. Um, and her prior film, Sybil, had been on my list to see for a while. And so before seeing Anatomy of a Fall, I went back and watched Sybil, um, which is maybe still my favorite of hers. I, I want to give Anatomy of a Fall another watch, both because I really liked it and because when Julie and I saw it, uh, there was some theater construction going on and it sounded like someone was drilling through the wall, like directly next to the theater, which is very <laughs> distracting. Um, but um, Sybil is, it kind of points to what Anatomy of a Fall will be in some ways and very different than some others. So it's about a psychiatrist played by uh, Virginie Efura, um, who listeners might remember from um oh shit paul verhoeven's most recent film about the nuns what the hell was that film called um benedetta benedetta um yeah. she was the lead in that and then she's also the lead this year in um what am i thinking of other people's children which is another film i really love um yeah. but this was um kind of an early-ish leading role in her kind of burgeoning film career um and she plays a psychiatrist who is trying to make a career change going back to writing. Um, she kind of reached a point in her career where she's felt like she's kind of burning out on psychiatry and um, really wants to take another whack at fiction. Um, and so she's kind of paring down her client list. And as she's doing so, uh, a woman played by Adele Exerchopoulos calls her and is like, someone referred me to you. I really, really need your help. And she's, you know, trying to put her off and trying to say, you know, I'm trying to parent my client list. You're, I hear some people I can refer you to, but um, this woman, Margot keeps calling her back and calling her back, calling her back and trying to get through to her and trying to get help from her. Um, and she, Margot is um, an up and coming actress who has had a relationship with a very famous actor and, um, that actor, because of the relationship, has gotten her cast in a new movie that will be like her big breakout. Um, but she's also pregnant by this actor. And, oh, this actor has also been in a long-term relationship with that film's director. Um, so this actress is in a very uh, uncomfortable 
uh, kind of fork in the road in her life, and she's really not sure what to do, and is very dependent on Sybil, the Virginia for a character, um, to point her uh, the right way to go. Um, and the way I describe this on Letterboxd, and kind of still the best way I can kind of loosely describe the film, is that it's a tragic melodrama about a woman trapped in a comedy, because uh, Fira plays her character very straightforwardly. Um, and very sympathetically as, you know, a woman who has a lot of psychiatric training um, and knows all the right things to say to this woman who's in very deep stress, but is also kind of growing enraptured by her crises and kind of can't stop giving herself over to Margot as um, both a psychiatrist and increasingly as a friend and just becomes more and more enveloped in her life, both for her own self-interest and uh, professional interest and concern about Margo, but also as a burgeoning um, fiction writer, she's kind of turning Margo's story into a novel that she's writing. And it's very much about um, kind of the exploitation of any kind of fiction making. And as we discovered, like the film show that they go on, um, which of course Sybil becomes involved in because she can't help becoming uh, interested in anything that Margot's doing um, is kind of the same thing. Um, so the actor's uh, girlfriend who's directing the film is played by Sandra Huller um, as the kind of character that almost very, very, very few um, female actors are ever asked to play and which Sandra Huller shows that more and more should be where she's like, unbelievably self-involved and is just like using every corner of this film's production to take a dig at her boyfriend who she's completely pissed off at for getting involved with this younger actress um and is just so like petty and um whiny and just like really just petulant at all turns and it's the kind of thing that i think most like you know quote-unquote politically correct films would like try to portray more sensitively or like caringly and show that she has her own trauma as a result of this. But no, she's just like a complete psychopath and just like completely petulant at all turns and just total nightmare. Um, and is Sandra Hulley's performance is unbelievably funny. I was just laughing at every turn. Um, and as with anatomy of fall, it just has very inventive editing and kind of weaving all these stories together. Um, and yeah, it's just a great, tonal balance that not a lot of other films attempt between comedy and drama, but which is totally enrapturing. And um, yeah, if people have dug Anatomy of Fall, I really recommend uh, checking out this film. Uh, yeah, I have to see that. Um, thanks to um, Music Box Films um, constantly sending me Blu-rays that I didn't ask for. I actually have, <laughs> I have a Blu-ray of this movie. Ah. I just um, never got around to it. To watching it yeah um, for other listeners it's on uh tubi and some uh oh it's on prime if you want to watch it without commercials okay <clears throat> moving into the top the 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 second half the top five yeah the real I, shit. uh now i um the nature of this is uh, unlike with our top 10 you wouldn't expect there to be any overlap, but I'm wondering, there are at least two films in my top five, maybe three, that I know that you also saw for the first time this year. <laughs> I would be very surprised looking at my top five if there's any direct overlap, okay. but I'm okay. happy to have some that I can talk about too. Um, yeah, so my number five uh, is a movie we didn't see together, we just happened to be at the same screening, uh, Jean Eustache's My Little Loves. Oh, yeah. Um, the uh, American Cinema Tech did a whole... John Eustache 
like retrospective i only made it to my little loves which is uh i understand he only made two non-documentary features this yeah i was and, gonna say as much as you can do a retrospective of Sean's yeah, session. yeah um yeah this and and the mother and the horror this was his second one uh and it's called my little loves charming title you read the basic description coming of age story you're expecting a charming movie but we went i had a lot of female misfits in the top half now we're moving to like male <laughs> Perfect. misfits but misfit maybe isn't even the right word because one of the things about my little love is how unsettlingly honest it is about what pervy little creeps like yeah. 12 and 13 year old boys are um because it's basically about a kid who uh lives in the countryside and then gets sent for the school year into the city i think and then yeah dro- drops out of school uh, sorry it's this all this was like in june when we saw this so it's also like a three-hour movie or something like that it's like um, there's a lot of story involved well it's not as long as mother in the horror but yeah it's it's over two hours uh yeah. for sure um uh so yeah at one point he drops out of school or gets kicked out or something and ends up just like working as he's, he's like a this 12 year old kid uh working uh fixing mopeds or working for a person who fixes mopeds and uh this is where he meets some older boys and uh he starts being interested in girls but like like i was saying earlier about the lover about me like learning what girls go through by knowing girls my little loves my little love is more uh the uh, uh, the common tale uh the, the more common tale of a boy quote unquote learning about girls from other boys who don't know anything about girls <laughs> totally <laughs> um and so yeah there's uh a, a lot of him like i think my uh my letter rocks review was just something like uh i kind of like this pervy little creep <laughs> or something <laughs> um but uh yeah there, there's a, there's a lot of him being um inappropriate with with, with girls and, and trying to like grow up faster than he was in his sort of uh more protected uh idyllic rural uh home and then yeah at the end of the movie he goes back to the countryside and the kids he was playing with at the beginning they're still the same age but they seem like children he seems like at least in his own mind more of a young man uh i was just I, I just found this this take on a coming of age story, which it absolutely is. But coming of age, that phrase tends to conjure up uh, a certain sort of um, sweetness to it. And uh, My Little Loves, uh, despite the title, is not a very sweet movie. No, no. Um, yeah. I, uh, so I love Mother and the Horde. It's still my favorite Yusesh film. Um, but even in his short career, he like... I mentioned this in Letterboxd, but got to the kind of two male French filmmaker subjects. Why do all these sexy women hate me? And look what a horny little shit I was. <laughs> and this is definitely the look what a horny little shit I was movie. Um, oh, yeah. Like the opening scene of My Little Loves is it's like at church and he's like in line for the Eucharist or whatever. Yeah. And he's right. like <laughs> rubs his crotch against the girl in front of him. That's yeah. like the opening scene of the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so it's a tough movie to sell in this our modern puritanical age. But, you know, like you said, it's very much about like that emotional and sexual chaos of being like on the edge of puberty or just over it, where you have all these like chaotic, horrible emotions going on inside of you. And you both want to like embrace everyone and destroy everyone at the same time. 
um yeah it's a it's a really great film unfortunately it's you know not something I, even if it's on some like horrible upload somewhere i recommend people just wait for whatever edition criterion is going to put out because the restoration is really great mm-hmm. yeah all right um my number five um so with these like discoveries list i like we said at the top i try to edge towards things that maybe are a little less seen that were kind of true like things we uncovered for ourselves um but we also talked about in some episode over the past year um like the notion of discovery and the extent to which we're all in some way subject to curation efforts by someone or another you know throughout this show i mentioned like karina longworth's podcast I mentioned um, New Beverly's programming. You talked about a restoration that Criterion uh, made and which a local theater showed. Like someone is in some way helping us towards the films that we're watching. Um, This is a film that nobody was helping me towards watching, even though it's a very recent film, uh, relatively speaking to the like confines of this list, um, but which I hadn't even heard about despite being by a director that I love. Um, and it's Iris Sachs's Married Life from 2007. Um, so as Passages was coming out, I was looking back over Iris Sachs's filmography and, you know, I'd seen most of his like more famous work, especially his more recent work. But I'd never heard of this film he made in 2007, despite it coming out, you know, at a time when I was um, just starting to really get into film. Well, not just starting, I was already in college. So I was like in the rhythm of like keeping up with new releases and really like digging into the depths of the release calendar and what was playing at the art house theaters. But this is a film, you know, released by Sony pictures, classics starring Pierce Brosnan, Chris Cooper, Patricia Clarkson, and Rachel McAdams that I had no familiarity with. I like was aghast that it ever passed me by. Um, so I checked out from the library just to out of curiosity, wanting to see it. And I, Totally loved it. I think it's really exceptionally well done. Um, it's a period piece um, based on a novel from like the early 50s and set in the late 40s about um, a middle-aged businessman played by Chris Cooper who's having an affair with a young woman who's a war widow played by Rachel McAdams um, who, you know, she looks like Rachel McAdams. She's gorgeous. Who wouldn't want to have an affair with her? Um, and is kind of like looking finding a way to try to leave his wife played by Patricia Clarkson and um, without kind of overly upsetting her, even though as he doesn't know, and we come to find out she is also dissatisfied with their marriage and is looking as actively having an affair and um, has a lot of her own inner life things going on. Um, He confides all this to uh, his best friend played by Pierce Brosnan, who's this kind of, you know, uh, man about town. He's a very eligible bachelor, but is just kind of enjoying um, his free reign as a, as a sexual being. A very, like, if Don Draper never got married, you can see him becoming a Chris Brosnan type in this film. Um, and as he invites all this to Pierce Brosnan, he's like, you know, this woman, uh, Kay, Rachel McAdams, um, I really love her, but, you know, she doesn't really have a lot of life outside of her relationship with me. Maybe you can go uh, keep her company, which, like, 
advice to all people who are dating beautiful women, don't send Pierce Brosnan to go keep them company because he, uh, <laughs> as in the course of the film, will quickly, quickly seduce and sleep with them. Um, and so it becomes like a very kind of intricate web of relationship dynamics as Chris Cooper sees um, both his hope for the future kind of come unwound at the precise moment when he's trying to become untethered from Patricia Clarkson. Um, and he's very torn at two edges. The The novel, as I kind of read up on it, makes more tragic the circumstances of the way this all ends up. Iris Sachs, and the, he co-wrote the screenplay with Oren Moverman, uh, who went on to be a pretty notable director in his own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, albeit, he doesn't work as much as I would like, but he made a couple of really strong films shortly after this point. Um, but um, the screenplay makes a really strong choice to make the results of all this less overtly tragic and more just kind of like melancholy and strange and unsettling and a little uncomfortable. Um, And I think the other strong point to this is it's not set in the period where a lot of kind of post-war films are set of like the mid fifties or the early sixties, when things get a little more uncomfortable, this is like very much a post-war film where people are just returned from the war or just coming out of, the effects of the war and starting to see their lives settle into a pattern that they uh, understood to be something they might want, but are now kind of reassessing things and trying to mold in different kind of future for themselves. than they might have wanted uh, as the war was starting or during the course of the war when survival was the main objective. And here's like, not only post-war, but also post-depression, where there's more affluence throughout the country and more opportunities uh, at every turn. And so it's a more tumultuous period for, um, you know, middle-class people where they have a lot that they can do with their lives and they're just starting to see what that can look like. Um, and so it's just a really, really smart and well-executed film. Gorgeous look at it. Shot by Peter Deming, who um, I think most notably for cinephiles shoots like most of David Lynch's work. Um, in addition to doing like House Party and Scream 4, he has like the strangest filmography of most <laughs> cinematographers where like he'll do these very artsy films and also like Goldmember, the Austin Powers film or Rumor Has It. Um, he's like total work for higher things. Um, but it looks incredible and um it's just a really good compliment to like you know todd haynes kind of got in the market cornered as like the period piece gay filmmaker but iris Sachs makes um a impressive inroads in that department and apparently the film wasn't a great success upon release which is too bad and it's part of the reason why iris Sachs kind of returned to more independent spheres um but i was really really impressed with it and really really liked it yeah, I haven't seen. I didn't. Um, I jumped on board the Iris X train with "Keep the Lights On," and that's and I've seen everything since. Um, but yeah, that uh, that sounds great. That sounds very up my alley. Um, also, you um, accidentally said I had to stop because I, I I went down an IMDb wormhole just then while you were talking because you mentioned okay. Orin, you mentioned Orin movement and I was oh, like, sure. oh yeah, what else? And so yeah, I haven't seen I haven't actually seen any of his films other than The Messenger. Um, but I noticed that he was one of the writers on Love and Mercy, which is the the Brian Wilson movie where Paul oh, Dano yeah. played young Brian Wilson, and which is like I think a really good movie. And then I was like, wait, what did that director do? Bill Polhead. <laughs> and I I didn't know just last year he made a movie called Dream and Wild about Donnie and Joe Emerson, which is like I don't know if you know who that is. Yeah, um, yeah, that's on my uh, long list of things to catch up with over the next yeah. month. 
Casey Affleck and Walton Goggins played Donnie and Joe Emerson. I didn't even know this movie existed. Now I'm like, uh, really interested in it. Um, yeah, uh, the Messenger is really great. It's not. Uh, it's better rather than uh, Rampart, which is the next movie he made and the only other mm-hmm. film of his I've seen. But I see he made a film called Time Out of Mind, which I don't know. Oh, Richard Gere film, and then he made something in 2017 called The Dinner, which I've truly never heard of. Oh, I don't even recognize. Wait, um, Jennifer Connelly. No. Uh, no. It looks I like Richard Gere, think... Steve Coogan, Laura Lenny, Rebecca Hall. Oh, Chloe Sevigny, who I do love. Oh. Um. And Chloe Sevigny played the aforementioned Lizzie Borden, the accused murderer, <laughs> That's not right. the film director. Bring um, it all back home. By the way, I don't know. Did, I, did you see Lizzie with uh, Chloe Sevigny? Yeah, I liked yeah. it. Me too. Um, that director has the, just the curse of of our modern age is that he made this good movie and then has made essentially only like semi-prestige genre television. Oh, uh, like, yeah. 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 Get back to movies. Anyway, yeah. okay. Okay, so Married Speaking Life... getting uh, back to movies. Sorry, Married Life you can find on VOD and on Tubi. Okay. Speaking of getting back to movies, I can already tell you you can find this movie in the Criterion Collection because that's where I found it. And this is another one where I'm picking one to sort of represent a set. Um, Terrence Davies passed away this year. Hmm. And uh, I've been watching um, some of his movies. And Criterion has his first three movies, which... Um, I could talk about it as a set because they've actually been released as the Terrence Davies trilogy. Like they are referred to yeah. as that sometimes. And they've actually, I think even screened like together uh, because they are all autobiographical and do kind of take place chronologically. Um, uh, and I even think in the second and the third one, it's the same actor. Um, the first one's a kid, but uh, I'm picking the third one, death and transfiguration, which um, really, watching these movies in order and then, and then going into his feature, Terrence Davies feature work, uh, you see him like settling on what works for him, becoming more confident, um, in the kind of, um, uh, stylized, uh, tableau, uh, type of filmmaking that, that he makes. And, and that is often, um, I mean, a lot of his stuff could, be described as emo i guess <laughs> but uh, not where i thought you were going with that sentence uh i mean not in um it's not like chaotic or or like garment rending it's very staid and mannered the filmmaking but the uh emotional climaxes that he gets to um are very I mean, I'll go back to when I first, the first Terrence Davies movie I ever saw was the deep blue sea when it was new. Um, not the shark movie dummies. Um, <laughs> uh, when it was new, I didn't know anything about him and I found his like completely unselfconscious earnestness, like, um, disarming and sometimes maybe even a little embarrassing. I guess this is what I'm getting back to is something I've said on this podcast multiple times. Um, a lot of my favorite artwork that I've experienced over the course of my life, runs the risk of being embarrassing for the the, sure. the creator. And um I think Death and Transfiguration shows this complete lack of self-consciousness of like him this is the third film he's followed this sort of loose character that is loosely based on him. Um but this is the one that goes from being it still has autobiographical elements, but then it also goes the the title is not just a clever title. It goes into the future and imagines he imagines himself on his deathbed 
Mm. Um, and there's a lot of use of sound in his movies um, and a lot of use of absence of sound in his movies. Uh, and a lot of that is musical. There are a lot of like oral vocals in his movies, but uh, a piece of the fabric of death and transfiguration becomes as the movie goes on, as we keep revisiting the deathbed future character um, getting closer and closer to death, his like death rattle, his raspy breathing becomes almost like a metronome, um, a, a terrifying horse metronome. <laughs> um, and uh, the movie reaches a, uh, uh, an emotional uh, crescendo that is um, truly beautiful. And like I said, risks, runs the risk of being like overdone, you know, um, overbearing, but, uh, you can really see how he, you can see after watching these three movies in a row and finishing with death and transfiguration, how at that point he's a filmmaker who was like, okay, I'm going to make features now because he yeah. really felt like you see him grow into his confidence. And, uh, yeah, death and transfiguration is the best of the three, but they're all good. It's uh, children, Madonna and Child and Death and Transfiguration. Looking forward to catching up with those myself. All right. Um, so my number four is one that we talked about very recently on the Patreon, um, but obviously made a huge impression on me. Um, Jacques Gravette's La Morfou, um, which was the third film I made. he made, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, and kind of... I think more overtly set the template for what uh, is to come with him, where he gets more experimental and more strange, um, but is tackling kind of a narrative subject matter that he didn't do as much. So it kind of falls too active through lines where it's on one side, the dissolution of a marriage between um, a theater director and an actress who's um, worked in multiple productions of his is not clear whether or not, the the relationship preceded the marriage or sorry the marriage preceded the um theatrical endeavor or vice versa but at the very beginning of the film she um the woman was played by um bully ogier um, who's a great french actress who's featured in many revet films um she quits the production they're working on she's just too overwhelmed um and she especially can't take the 16 millimeter film crew that is following the production around um and whose footage is becomes kind of interspersed throughout the course of the film um and so the film is more broadly about whether their marriage can survive the lack of um a any kind of artistic endeavor that is shared between the two of them um interestingly and i didn't note this in the patreon and because uh, i didn't know it until i was doing kind of research for this episode um it was co-written by a woman named mary lou uh, Perle, uh, Perlini, um, who was a secretary at Caillou du Cinema, where Jacques Rivette and Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truveau and uh, Eric Romero all worked and wrote. And she was married to Rivette um, for several years in the early 60s. They were divorced well before this film um, came out, but they continued to uh, be artistic collaborators. And so you know, it kind of invites the speculation to the extent to which this is at least emotionally autobiographical, where it's these two people who shared kind of an artistic purpose, um, but their marriage eventually fell apart. And um, the way in which this marriage falls apart um, will not be like unfamiliar to those who know Rivette's later work, like Out One or Duel or um, Pont Noir. Um, 
or even um uh label nusos which is a more like uh kind of stayed but also more in some ways emotionally volatile um experience about kind of artistic endeavors and sexual desire um but this is a really invigorating and very strange film that I've been looking forward to seeing for many, many years and which finally um, got restored and is being released by Janus, which means that a Criterion release in some form is soon forthcoming, which is what I recommend people hold out for because any rips of it will not convey um, kind of the beauty of the cinematography and the dis the difference between 35 millimeter footage, which is kind of the main feature in the 16 millimeter footage that kind of like subs in, in these rehearsal sequences to show what the actors are going through. Um, I think it's more successful than out one in kind of drawing the emotional tenor between the rehearsals and the main narrative. Um, it's a little less successful aesthetically because, you know, hippie clothes are difficult to convey in black and white. They deserve a little more color that um, color photography can give them. But um, the emotional tenor of this is uh, very unusual for Rivette to explore and really, really, really well done as the two of them become kind of trapped with themselves and kind of at odds with all these like little habits that build up in a relationship that you just kind of come to accept. But as you know, a relationship hits the skids, like every small thing starts to drive them crazy about one another. Um, I saw this was like not related to like uh, marital dynamics, but somebody was remarking that like, they called this the um, like chewing nuts phenomenon where like any like tiny little thing a person could do, whether it's just like eating a meal or like, planning a road trip or like whatever habit they have will just start to drive you nuts once the person in general drives you nuts and like <laughs> um seeing the two of them kind of pick fits with each other as uh their frustration grows um and start to be at one another's necks uh, eventually in very physical ways not in kind of like uh, physically violent ways towards themselves but more physically violent towards their environment um, which is almost more interesting as their apartment kind of gets start to be torn to shreds through their emotional volatility. Um, it's just really invigorating and involving and exciting to watch over its long run time. It's not out one, it's not 13 hours, but it's uh, still four hours and change. Um, but I had no trouble staying in my seat and not using the restroom through the course of the screening at the Egyptian. Um, and so, yeah, whenever Criterion puts this out in whatever form, uh, definitely recommend people check it out. Uh, okay. I don't have anything to say about That's that right. one. Uh, so moving on to my number three. Now I said at the outset, this would be movies that I either like didn't know about before 2023 or did not know they were so good and was surprised. Sure. By them. This, so this one is definitely in the latter category, definitely a movie I've heard of for years and just only happened to watch very recently. Um, uh, and it's Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish. Oh God, I love this movie. It's so great, and um, I watched. I ended up watching it at home. So um, I've still never been to um, Secret Movie Club here in Same. Los Angeles, and that, and the schedule worked out. I was gonna go to see Rumblefish, and then luckily I checked my Instagram because I follow them on Instagram and they had to cancel the screening like huh. uh, a couple hours beforehand. So I was like, uh, I guess I'll just go home and rent it on whatever it's on. Yeah. Uh, and I wish I could have seen it um, on a, on a big screen, but still it's, it's power uh, was not lost on me. Um, 
I mean, you were talking about, I think, uh, was it the last movie you were talking about someone like becoming more experimental? Um, yeah. I'd seen Outsiders and Outsiders, Outsiders is not exactly like, you know, by the book filmmaking, it's, it's, um, still very uh indulgent and sometimes sort of like impressionistic and stuff um but it's nothing compared to um what a how uh i think the this is one of those one of those words you only like uh read or write and never say oniric oniric o-n-e-i-r-i-c basically it's a fancy fancy way of saying dreamlike um it's a it's a uh even outside it didn't prepare me for how uh dreamlike and intoxicating rumblefish is it is now very easily my new favorite mickey rourke performance of all time yeah definitely um and you know um i mean and he's not even like matt dillon is the the lead i guess as the um he's the 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 matt dillon is like the head of a sort of a gang of greasers or whatever yeah whose older brother former head of the gang is mickey rourke who is only known as the motorcycle boy um and uh it really is a tragedy of uh matt dillon's character but also a tragedy of the motorcycle boy um and yeah i don't know there's a lot of story points i could talk about but really i'm just more focused on the um the the picture and the sound design of of the movie and how intoxicating that is with the um i mean every every line feels like it's adr'd but in a dreamy way i don't know if yeah. i don't know how they actually uh if they actually adr'd everything but it feels like when people are speaking it's often the only sound you're hearing are the voices or if you're not if you are hearing something else it's very specifically because you need to be hearing a train at that moment or something like that uh it's very deliberate filmmaking very um uh i keep wanting to find different ways of saying dreamlike uh but it also is absolutely a a tragedy um it's an incredibly sad movie of a guy who looks up to his older brother and hasn't accepted the fact that he can never be that he's still striving for that. And kind of everyone around him kind of realizes like you're not your older brother and you're not going to be, but he, he literally says things like, that's what I'm going to be like when I'm his age. That's what I'm going to look like when I'm his, but he's also recognizing like that his older brother isn't everything that he hoped he'd be. And is like, and Mickey Rourke has several lines. It's like, I'm sorry, I couldn't be the brother that you needed or whatever. But, but do you think, Rusty James, who again is never called Rusty, always Rusty James, Matt Dillon's <laughs> character. Even when he's told that, do you think it really sinks in? I, I don't know that he fully ever lets go of his idea of of his brother. But it's like anything else. It's like you know, it, with any like idolized family member, be it a brother or father, or to look outside of family, like a past girlfriend that someone might have. Like you can always, even when you can consciously tell yourself the like limitations of them you always in a way hold on to the ideal of them you know yeah and so i I think he's just at the crossroads of that point of like in a few years maybe he'd see the other side of that and fully kind of integrating that in his life but he's just starting to see that his brother isn't everything that he thought he was yeah 
Um, but as with Outsiders, the cast is just amazing. Matt Dillon, Mickey yes. Rourke, Diane Lane, Dennis Hopper, Vincent Spano. I don't know what happened to him. But uh, Nicolas Cage, Chris Penn, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Tom Waits, Sophia yeah. Coppola, uh, Tracy Walter, if you know who that is, uh, character actor. Um, yeah, great, great cast. Uh, Tom Waits has a line in this movie that I literally think about probably at least once a month, but definitely every summer where he's like, how many summers I got left 35 or whatever. Um, (laughs) I think about that constantly. Um, Yeah. In his commentary track, Coppola talks about like this being really a movie about time and like that line kind of points to it. And there's all these kind of like symbols throughout the film of like clocks ticking and people watching like time going by and very much about like the sense of when you're young, that like you just have all this time in front of you and throughout the course of the film, them recognizing that they really don't, that life can be incredibly short. Um, and yeah, it's just a great build on Coppola's recurring theme about brothers and idolizing um, the people in your family and the limitations they have and eventually assuming a sense of responsibility in your life. I mean, that's, that's essentially like what the three Godfather films are about over mm in various ways um tetro is definitely about that um big time yeah rumblefish is one that i saw because masters of cinema put it out when i was still reviewing those discs for uh criterion cast and uh you know as much as i'd been like a big fan of Ford coppola you know i was one of the, the three people who saw youth without youth in a theater uh when it came out um but this was really what cemented um him for me as one of like my absolute favorite directors because it was so invigorating and so personal and Mm -hmm. spoke a lot to me and what I've like gone through emotionally over the course of my life. And, um, just kind of pointed to a sense of constant rediscovery that he's gone on throughout his career. Like the eighties, when I was coming up as a cinephile, like the eighties was so like the lost Francis Ford Coppola decade. It was like, he made these great films in the seventies and then he just like went to shit or whatever. And it's like, that's a rumblefish. Like, this is amazing. What are you guys talking about? Like, it's so good. Um, and, you know, I, I then going th- back and seeing Peggy Sue Got Married and Tucker, The Man is Dream, both of which I think are also like as good as anything else he's done. Um, and I, I remember even by the time I saw Rumblefish, like I mentioned it to um, some friends of ours who I, I, I won't name and shame. But uh, I was like, I, I this to me is like as good as The Godfather. Like, no way. There's no way it's because of The Godfather. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, for a lot of people in our generation, it's become like their favorite Coppola movie. And I completely can see why. I can't yeah. let go of like part two and maybe Apocalypse Now. But uh, Rumblefish is way up there for sure. Yeah. And I'm also... Um a huge Peggy Sue got married fan. Yeah. Uh, Tucker. I have my hangups with, um, not in the filmmaking. I think like, uh, politically, I think the movie is, um, easily confused and juvenile, I think. And it's, yeah. Um, and it, it kind of bothers me, but, um, it's such a cool looking movie. movie that like i could i can set it aside a little bit i like i like tucker and and i like jeff bridges but it doesn't quite hang up there with me with the other 80s stuff um like pegasus who got married and um what do you think of have you seen new york stories what do you think of his entry in new york stories uh that's one of very very few france for a couple of films i've not seen but i've long wanted to well once again as i always say let me know when you want to borrow the okay. Blu-ray because I have it. 
Um, it's the weird one. I mean, everyone focuses on life lessons, the Scorsese one, and rightfully so, it's great. Um, the Woody Allen one seems like a Woody Allen thing he did in his he could do in his sleep. Sure. Uh, but the Coppola one is 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 odd. Um, and I'd be curious to know what you thought of it. Is that another? I feel like there's some. No, no. I'm, I thought Sophie Coppola was in the cast for that, but I'm seeing now she's not. Um, I think maybe she wrote that section though. Oh, like that sounds some... that actually does sound familiar now. Uh, yeah. Okay. There, there's a written by credit for Sophie right. Coppola and the film at large. So I assume yeah, she helped write that section. Yeah. Um, I, I like her in Rumble Fish too. I know everyone's so like mean to her. Oh yeah, she's great. Godfather Part Three, but yeah, in Rumble Fish and like. Matt Dillon and Diane Lane are like making out and she's like, you're not supposed to do that in front of me because <laughs> <laughs> she's Diane Lane's little sister. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, are we on to your number three then? Uh, that feels right. Yes, we are indeed. Um, so my number three is uh, Richard Thorpe's 1954 musical Athena. Um, so this is not the Athena that was released like last year or whatever. That is like largely overblown and kind of blows. Um, this is a very, very cool, very weird musical um, that actually coming off of my Jacques Rivette film, uh, very much felt of a piece with like Jacques Rivette's work. So it's about um, this politician played by ba, 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 Edmund Purdom, um, who is um, looking to make a run at the uh, House of Representatives or some congressional outfit. Um, and he's kind of being buoyed by his uh, late father's associates as like the heir apparent, the next uh, in a long lineage of um, political figures in his family to like take a seat at the table kind of thing. Um, but he soon meets a woman played by Jane Powell, who is part of a family of uh, kind of like new agey health nuts. Um, they're anti-smoking, which for the 1950s is like a very extreme stance to take, um, but uh, almost more extreme for the 1950s. They're vegetarians um, and they're, they follow astrology and numerology to dictate their lives and kind of guide them um, along the way. And they have this kind of like secret society going, which, um, you know, I think more amusingly than pointedly, it seems mostly geared towards winning the Mr. Universe contest. <laughs> they have like this like vault of bodybuilders in their stable who are like following their uh, health guidelines um, to uh, win this contest. But um, the kind of undercurrent of it is this kind of like uh, counterculture movement that you know, in some of the uh, remarks in the film that I was looking up, you know, Jane Powell said it probably would have been more successful in the 1970s when a lot of these things had become more mainstream. But these things did exist in the 50s. You know, that's kind of like what the Beatnik movement was built on is this kind of like way of moving against the mainstream um, in various ways. And so I think the culture was there for it. Um, but I'm not surprised that this film was not a great success upon its release because it's deeply, deeply unusual. Um, but the musical numbers are really, really catchy, um, really involving. And just the way in which the film is told kind of has this dreamlike air where characters keep popping up in places you wouldn't expect, but they seem kind of like spiritually meant to be there. Um, and it all works in a very like emotionally forward kind of way. Um, Vic Damone is also in it as kind of a crooner who becomes involved in this cohort. And Debbie Reynolds plays another one of the sisters alongside Jane Powell of this family. Um, and it's 
really funny and pretty sharp about um, the unusualness of this family while still ultimately coming to what they believe in, um, which I think was kind of the most refreshing thing about it, that it didn't, um, it, you know, it, it kind of has its laughs at their way of life, but didn't use them purely as a punchline. It gives itself over to a spiritual dimension that is not at all what um, mainstream America was about in the mid 1950s, but which um, for the purposes of the film really plays very, very well. Um, yeah, it was one that popped up just randomly on TCM because um, we get that because we have family members who actually still have a cable package. God love them. Um, and so we have access to TCM. But um, you're it, talking about me. Oh, well. yes, you you do still have a cable package. That's correct. Um, well, I mean, um, yeah. Uh, never mind. <laughs> uh, okay. it's, it's more. It, yeah. Natalie, I don't really use it. Natalie, yeah, yeah. Um, Natalie likes to have cable TV. Um, but it's been restored by Warner Archive. They have a Blu-ray ad. It's on VOD. It's easily accessible. Um, but it, I mean, even amongst the sphere of 50s musicals, which run the gamut of like deeply unusual to incredibly stayed and mainstream, uh, is one of the more unusual 50s musicals I've seen. Um, and one that I, I watched twice in the narrow period is on kind of the Watch TCM app. But um, absolutely loved both times. Uh, wait, say the name again. Athena. Athena. Okay. Uh, all right. Moving on to my top two. This one might be um, definitely a movie I'd heard of. So maybe it is uh, cheating, but um, another short I've had, uh, I've got a, a couple of shorts on here, um, but I went from in 2022, not having seen any Kenneth Anger films to sure. in 2023, having seen Pearl Letterboxd, 11 of them. And uh, they're all uh, brilliant. I could easily have picked Fireworks or Ode Artifice or Custom Car Commandos, but I'm going to go with Scorpio Rising um, because it's th th there's something that happens sometimes where you um, you see like you see things in pop culture and then you go back and you realize what the influence was and um, Scorpio, Scorpio rising. I feel like has to be one of the most influential films I've ever seen because oh, yeah. um, I mean, even in something you and I and Tyler recently talked about cruising. Uh, we talked about cruising on the, uh, on the podcast. I'm not sure that cruising looks the way it does without Scorpio rising. Uh, more recently, there was one of my favorite films of 2022, please baby, please, which is uh highly Kenneth anger, um, uh, influenced. And, uh, I, yeah, the, 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 the male gaze, uh, and I mean gaze by both spelling uh, <laughs> of, of, of the movie, uh, is um, entrancing. The music is like almost funny, but not really. There's kind of like a John Waters he throwback to it. John Waters is probably also a uh, someone who was influenced by Kenneth, Kenneth Anger. Um, and uh, just the de depiction of leather-based gay masculinity um, just keeps. And obviously it existed. Kind of thing. didn't make it up. He depicted it, but I don't think, um, 
but I, I, I clearly, I still think these these images are too in, indelible to uh, dismiss their influence. So I don't have much else to say. I'm just saying Scorpio Rising, number two. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely my favorite of the anger films that we watched for the course of that episode. Um, and I, in addition to the mirrored influences, you also mentioned it was very clearly like an influence on especially early Martin Scorsese, but um, I think throughout his career, the use of music. Uh, just, I don't think right. Scorsese yeah. would take those same kind of chances without uh, the influence of Scorpio Rising. I think that's something he readily admitted as well. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's just like so on my alley of like integrating all these tunes, which I listen to constantly on my own, just of my own volition um, with like overt sexual desire and also twisting that sexual desire into like exploring the white supremacist angles of yeah. biker culture. It's like a wild journey over the course of whatever, like a half hour or whatever, however long the film is. Um, and it has more um, things kind of, uh intuitively relayed or like um suggested than overtly spelled out but um it really ties together the binds between yeah biker culture sexuality um homosexuality for that matter i mean it's like the the weird fact of like the production story where the biker guys were like fine to do all the weird shit the kind of thing you're asking them to do but like didn't want their girlfriends involved in it so they just yeah. like accidentally revealed like I don't know, possible <laughs> repressed homosexuality, but yeah, like ended yeah. up being part of something way more like grotesque and perverted by their standards than they would have ever allowed because they were just trying to like protect their ladies, which like props to them and all, but it's like funny the way that that can be then twisted. And then, yeah, the whole, yeah, white supremacist angle where it gets into like kind of the suggestion that there's a lot of uh, Nazi aesthetic that's been folded into biker culture um yeah it's just a very invigorating wild um scene of a 35 minute film that uh, i was really really glad to finally see as the course of the watching of uh reviewing anger's career yeah um i did i forgot to look up where it's available but um yeah let's see can... but i can tell you that the um the uh bfi uh kenneth anger collection blu-ray um, is not actually region coded. It'll play fine yeah. <laughs> on, on your player, um, uh, which is something I'm glad I discovered. Uh, yeah, Scorpio Rising, you can also just watch on YouTube. Okay. All right. Um, actually, this is a handy transition to my number two. Um, so shortly after watching Scorpio Rising, I uh, found a, a handy playlist that assembled all the musical tracks in Scorpio Rising, which was very handy because, you know, like I said, I listen to music routinely anyway. And so I had a lot of this at handy, but there were some things that I'd like forgot about. And the same thing happened to me with watching uh, Zelda Baron's Shag from 1988. Um, so in the kind of aftermath of Dirty Dancing, there were several other films made that were kind of like revisiting the late 50s, early 60s period of kind of a youth culture and dance culture that um, took a, you know, slightly saucier look at the hair than had prior been seen. Uh, and I'm not a big Dirty Dancing fan, but I am, I think it takes too many liberties with this period. And it's just like, especially by the climax, becomes like a full on like 80s music video. Um, but I'm glad that its success paved the way for Shag 
which is much more indebted to its period and much more accepting mm. of kind of the social limitations and personal limitations that uh, people within that era would place themselves in while still um, getting a little more sexually uh, explorative than a film of its era could. It felt very much of a piece with something like American Graffiti, where it's like, so the course American Graffiti is like, you know, the last night in town before these kids go off to college and like what they'll do with their lives and all that kind of stuff. Um, this is about four uh, young women who um, have, have graduated from high school or soon graduate from high school and all have a sense of what their lives will be um in the year to come one of them you know is going off to school one of them wants to run to california to be an actress um one is set to get married um and i can't remember what the fourth is set to do <laughs> but um they all like have very prescribed ideas of their future that are very much in the um kind of codes of early 60s um femininity um who uh have told their parents. So they're all from the South. Um, and it's very much a film that is, you know, in, from a contemporary perspective, sometimes uncomfortably okay with Southern culture and, it, it, but also very questioning of that in the way that I think most teenagers are. So they tell their friends, they're going off to see this like great civil war, or sorry, they tell their parents that they're going off to see this great civil war monument when in reality, they're driving off to Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina to um, just have a wild weekend and, you know, maybe drink a little bit, uh, maybe meet a few boys and just kind of like enjoy one another's company um, for this very last time before their lives become uh, very prescribed and they're not able to get away the way young women can. Um, so they quickly encounter, and this is where the film's tagline or from title rather comes from uh, a shag contest, which is something that I didn't know about at all, but it, the shag was a dance style in the early 1960s. Um, and so the contest becomes kind of the thing to which the film is building and, um, kind of the event that will, uh, make the young women face themselves and face the choices that they've made and whether or not they want to stick with those choices uh, for the rest of their lives and whether or not they want to reassess them. You know, they made some boys through the course of this weekend that make them reassess it. Um, they come to grips with one another and their own interpersonal relationships. And it's just a really, uh, it's very much like of a piece, like I said, American Graffiti or Days and Confused, all those kind of like last weekend, last summer, last real kind of things of teenage friendship before real life sets in. Um, and it's really funny. It has a great, great, great finale. It has an amazing soundtrack and Zelda Baron, who I had never heard of at all and whose other films are very hard to find um, as is shag for that matter. Um, it just does such a great job of building the kind of dynamic between the characters. Um, it stars Phoebe Cates, Bridget Fonda as two of the four young women. The other two were not um, all that well known, um, but builds a great dynamic between the four of them and does a great job of shooting and lending a lot of energy to um, the kind of adventure they go on where it really feels very propulsive, propulsive and very energetic. And that kind of just thrill of like, having your last summer when you're 17 or 18 years old and you think uh, the rest of your life is kind of set for you. And this is the last grasp of youth that you'll have. Um, so this is one that showed up on 
the TCM rep randomly. And because of its kind of subject matter, I was kind of drawn to and barely caught it before it expired from the app, um, but which I quickly then checked out from the library. Um, it is uploaded to Vimeo, I think, or no, Daily Motion. I found it on if you want to watch it in two parts or check mm-hmm. your local library and see if they have the DVD that um, all the films put out. Um, but yeah, I totally love this film. <laughs> I am an idiot because I didn't watch it when I could have because my high school girlfriend loved this movie. Oh, man. You had a smart high school but, girlfriend. Well, but she also loved Dirty Dancing, which I yeah. watched with her and did not like at the time. Now, I actually kind of love Dirty Dancing. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, I didn't watch Shag with her because I didn't like Dirty Dancing and I I, I, I missed out. I, I should have watched it. Um, looking at uh, Zelda Baron, Baron? Yeah, Zelda Baron yeah. other films. One of them, the one that came out the same year as Shag, is listed on IMDb as Forbidden Sun, but apparently also uh, was called The Bull Dance, which is a better title than Forbidden Sun. Yeah. Uh, and the plot description, one sentence plot description, after a rape at a girl's gymnastics school, questions arise and bring to light ancient Cretan rituals. Okay. <laughs> now I want to find, I want to track down Forbidden Sun. Much to digest. Yeah. Uh, so are we on to my number one? We are. So this is the one that I thought there would be some overlap because I know you watched it. I know you loved it, but maybe it was too obvious for you. I will fully admit that I was not aware of Michael Snow or Wavelength before uh, this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was kind of an edge case. Also, I think I just kind of like mentally and like probably too impulsively discounted short films or like less than feature oh, okay. length. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Wavelength was a massive discovery for me as well. Yeah. Um, it was weird, weirdly a one-two punch of like Michael Snow died. I can't remember which one happened first. If the because there was a sight and sound fifth top fifty, but then they put out the sight and sound top two hundred and fifty. Yeah, and wavelength was on that, and Michael Snow died, and I can't remember which one happened first. But that sort of those two things happening at the same time made me think like like seeing people tweet um, uh, about Michael Snow and then seeing wavelength on that list. I was like, that was like we got to do this episode. That's kind of what, yeah. what cemented it. And, uh, I like, um, uh, I, I like pretty much all of his, his films. Um, and again, a lot of these could have, you know, back and forth, uh, is amazing. So, uh, solar breath is amazing, but, um, this is the one that spoke to me in the same way that a lot of the sort of extreme metal that I listened to. Sure. To me <laughs> in the sense that, it, it 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 almost forces the viewer or the listener in the case of the music to like obliterate anything other than what is happening right in front of you mm. with the with the art because it's so intense and in the wavelength case it's so noisy especially as it goes on that that it, there's one pitch that just like rises or or one note note that rises in pitch over the course of the 45 minutes or what 46 minutes whatever it is um uh and it, it 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 blots out the rest of the world and just um gets you invested in this uh slow zoom in parts um across a room um toward something toward a picture on a on a wall um uh and it's it's just a it's a way of experiencing art that uh, 
appeals to me because I am maybe, you know, I was diagnosed with ADD as a kid. Um, maybe that's partially like, I don't know if I still have any of that. Maybe that's partially why I like intense music and things like that is that it forces me to focus, um, and keeps my mind from wandering. And I thought that, uh, wavelength, the, the power that the movie had over my brain. Um, I don't think anything else this year, uh, matched that. Uh, I watched it twice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also like, I mean, yeah, I, I think you're categorizing as yeah. Something that completely kind of raptures you and like just grabs hold of you, um, points to what I'm about to say, which is like that. Uh, the closest thing I can liken to it is like a horror movie, even though there's nothing mm-hmm. like, scary about it as such but it almost feels like there's some kind of ghost story well, there's a, happening there's a dead body right at one point there is a dead body but the, i mean yeah. that doesn't necessarily be scary that could no, be yeah. i mean dead bodies have been used for comedy you know i mean a dead body yeah. could be anything yeah. but the tone of it is like there it feels like there's a ghost story happening at the same time where like yeah. um there's all these figures kind of floating in and out of this apartment yeah. um because of the way it's described where it's like it takes place in one room and there's a slow zoom i thought it would be like a more kind of academic uh kind of like vibe movie but like there's all kinds of things happening within that uh setup where like people are flitting in and out of that environment um there's a sense of things that happened before the film started sense of things Mm -hmm. seem to happen after the film ends almost you know it's like there's no real strict time barriers on what is depicting um and then like the film stock jumps in and out of different like color patterns i mean you've likened it to like metal i I most associated with like uh tony scott and like domino or man on fire where it's Mm. like it feels like the film's gonna combust over its sense of like overlapping images and um inventive editing and just like it's way more involved and elaborate and wild than that simple like it's a slow zoom over the course of 45 minutes or whatever would suggest um yeah, it, it's an, I, as with you, I watched it twice as well. Um, it's so great. And I'm pissed that there were innumerable opportunities I had to see it in a theater, but which were thwarted by scheduling. One time I got sick the same time I was screening, but I, I would love to see it in a theater because it's so, yeah, just uh, viscerally involving. Okay, we're moving on to your number one. And also, I mean, Wavelength is... It's on YouTube. I would um, maybe if you're like if you're more enterprising like Scott is, maybe find a better. Uh, oh yeah, I need to get that file to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, my number one is also one that you can find on Vimeo, but I would highly recommend um, if it's still available, picking up the Blu-ray from Kino. But I know it's going out of print, so you can. Buy it for very cheap if it's still available in their, like, uh, they have a wall supplies last section that's constantly on their website of, like, things that they're down to the last Mm. hundred copies of or whatever, but you can get them for, like, ten bucks or something. Um, But it's one that I blind bought uh, as a result of seeing it in that section. Uh, It's John Huston's Freud, a.k.a. Freud, The Secret Passion. Um, And it's a kind of biopic of... um, Sigmund Freud, the famous psychiatrist um, who kind of set the template for modern psychiatry and our um, understanding of the mind and the way that um, our pasts and traumas influence ourselves. Um, Freud as a subject has always loosely interested me, um, not only because like of 
the various things he's uncovered, he uncovered in the course of his life. Um, but I've always found the quick dismissals of him in contemporary society to be a little short-sighted and almost just like on a visceral level of like, people would just be like, oh, that's very Freudian of you. Or like Freud would say, and but like almost simply just like toss it off to be like, well, not everything can come back to sexuality or like what our dreams reveal about ourselves or like have this kind of one-to-one association that I think early Freudian studies kind of um, gathered around. And well, yeah, I think there's some things that are too reductive of, in the way that Freud's discoveries got incorporated into modern life. I've also found it to be too reductive the way that people are quick to dismiss those same approaches of like, yeah, there's probably a lot about us that comes back to sexuality and like hang up some like, our mothers and stuff. And like, I, there's, you know, still a lot that's worth considering. And so this film, which was made in 1962, um, kind of existed in an ideal fulcrum where Freud had been dead for a long while. Um, his findings had been well integrated into kind of contemporary Western life and our ways of understanding ourselves, but um, was also on the edge of a new kind of exploration of um, sexual identity and psychological exploration and which all of which uh, John Houston working from a screenplay by uh, Charles Coffin, Wolfgang Reinhardt and some small input from John Paul Sartre um, does a really great job of kind of exploring and digging out um, in the film. Freud is played by Montgomery Clift in probably his best performance. I'm a giant Montgomery Clift fan. Yeah. Um, and, but this is probably the best work I've seen from him um, and which Houston kind of wrote about or like related to um, some contemporaries as I wouldn't go as far as say exploiting Cliff's um, kind of like closeted sexual identity. Cliff was, uh, you know, to his friends an out gay man, but obviously to society, you know, he, he couldn't be in the course of his career and he died you know, shortly after the film came out. Um, but Houston, I, 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 if I remember correctly, Houston didn't know that Cliff was gay when he hired him, but like randomly accidentally walked in on him in bed with another man and like felt kind of bad for Cliff that he had to like hide this part of himself and then use that psychological tension in the course of making the film of like this guy who understands something about human nature that most of mainstream society isn't ready to accept, um, but is also uneasy about that same approach because there's no template for it. Um, and he's kind of setting that template. Um, so Sigmund Freud has these patients. It, a lot of the real life cases were kind of amalgamated in this character played by Susanna York, who um, has all these various neuroses um, that he spends the film kind of digging out, almost like a detective picture where they're kind of uncovering piece by piece and not as didactic as something like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, where like she has a dream and these sequels that, but it kind of incorporates that approach and kind of digs out from there. Um, I think where that approach becomes more incisive is both because um, Freud throughout the course of the film is constantly revising and coming to a greater understanding of what he's trying to uncover. Um, so like one thing that he thinks might be a conclusion in the early section ends up being completely revised uh, towards the end of the film. Um, 
And so it, it carries the suggestion throughout it of, I think, what Freudian psychology would go over over the next 40, 50, 60 years, where it's like, yeah, we have this approach and we think that it is revelatory, but we also might discover something else in the next several years that would change that or uh, complicate that or deepen it. Um, so I think it's a very incisive and very interesting film. And it's also, I mean, there's like sections of it that I can't believe weren't influenced by eight and a half because it came out the year before, mm -hmm. uh, Fleeing's eight and a half came out because like, literally there's a part where Freud has to be pulled back down by a rope out of the sky. Like it's part of the most famous sequence of eight and a half, but it's like not stolen from that. It's just like acting right alongside, um, everything that was going on in European new wave, which is not, uh, and it as adventurous a side of John Houston that I would have expected by this point in his career. I've kind of, before seeing this, I'd kind of like written Houston off as somebody who didn't come into himself until the seventies with something like fat city. Um, but this really suggests that he was as personally, culturally and psychologically attuned as anyone working in Europe uh, alongside him and really digging out something of his own culture and of world culture and of just of humanity that nobody else was really quite tackling in the same way. Um, it's a really staggering film and one that I'd resisted seeing despite my kind of loose interest in Freud as a figure because it kind of had a dodgy reputation. Um, but like I said, I finally blind bought it on Blu-ray um, and then it came in handy because Julie and I did an episode earlier this year on therapy and film. Right. Um, and I'm so glad that I took a plunge with it because it was just so so refreshingly strange and revealing and really like strangely personal personal for being such a like great historical figure biography biopic kind of thing um but it takes as it doesn't take as assumed the sense that he's a great historical figure it it's very much about like this like, this figure being in flux both in his own time and then the time in which the film was made um, so yeah, it's, I found it on Vimeo, just kind of like doing some research to see if listeners could watch it in any other way. It's a really shitty copy of it there, um, which doesn't do justice to the great cinematographer Douglas Slocum. Um, but if you have the means and the desire to seek it out on Blu-ray from Kino, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's, I mean, honestly, it's like number one discovery of the year. I watched something like, I came up with a figure of this before. This episode, and I forgot to have it handy, but I, I watched over 200 films this year that were that I'd never seen before from prior to this year. And um, this one definitely stood out. And wow. um, yeah, easily took the number one spot. Wow. Uh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, well, that's it. That's our 10. Um, that's it. So uh, we'll have a lot more. Uh, end of the year uh you know or, or sort of 2023 lookbacks uh, more specific to 2023 movies after this but um yes we don't just watch new movies all year no <laughs> how could you yeah uh well you know when we first when we first started like getting invited to like press screenings and then i started getting like when i was in the of joined the ofcs there was a period where i was like really really uh uh overlooking older movies and focus well that was back when you watched tv them. you were watching uh, too much tv hey i'm back into tv now uh, okay <laughs> but uh anyway 
you could find uh you probably can't find reviews of most of these but you could find some of us we discussed you know kenneth anger movies and and uh michael snow movies on on the podcast so uh you can find some of the discussions at battleshipretention.com you can email me at david at battleshipretention.com you can email tyler at tyler at battleshipretention.com uh follow me on twitter and blue sky at davy pretension i'm on letterbox that david backs and uh check out my other podcast speaking of tv it's called the one where i met your mother my, my wife and i are watching friends and how i met your mother and talking about it on a podcast so check that out uh scott um oh and join the patreon scott yeah we'll find you vote on the b piece um uh, on twitter and blue sky rail of tomorrow and on letterboxd um where i tried to hopefully maybe post at least a few notes of most of these films and various others um through the course of this year and uh yeah that's it all right well uh thank you at home for listening and we'll get you next time bye